So we've been reading the book of Luke, and so far we've mostly been reading the infancy narrative. So the first two chapters of Luke cover sort of the infancy narrative, the, the, the birth stories of John and of Jesus. And that's what we've been reading about, these two boys, right? John and Jesus. And so now uh, we're past that part of the story, and they're all grown up. And so last week we read about, uh, we were introduced uh, to the grown-up John the Baptist, right? And we read about, um, we read about John's ministry, and how he was a prophet like the Old Testament prophets. And um, he he called the people of God to repent from sin. And he showed up and he, he was baptizing Jewish folks, which if you remember, we said that baptism was a right for uh, people outside the faith to come into the Jewish faith. And he was saying, no, even you guys need to be baptized. Um, and then we read about how he was he was arrested for calling out Herod for his very public sin of adultery. And then... Um, and we talked about how his whole ministry, the whole point of his ministry was not to, to, to solve the problem or uh, to point people to himself, but was to point people to Jesus and then get out of the way. And so now, today we're going to meet the grown-up Jesus. Uh, he's going to come and he's going to meet John and we're going to read about the beginning of his ministry. Um, but before we do, I want to talk about Star Wars, right? Because I'm a dork and I love, well, it's okay, it's no Star Trek, but it's pretty great. Um, so you guys, a lot of some of you might remember the first Star Wars trilogy. Um, the last movie, Return of the Jedi, left theaters, uh, I think it was 1983. And it was one of the greatest, most successful trilogies of all time. And I was watching this, uh, Steven, I was watching that toy show uh, you told me to watch. Uh, and they were talking about the Star Wars toys. And in, one of the people in that show said, back then, you never asked somebody if they had seen Star Wars. Uh, what you asked them was how many times they had seen it. And so when this trilogy ended, uh, everybody thought that Star Wars was completely over. And so, like, I was born in 84, and uh, my whole life, my childhood, I grew up with these three movies. Um, we had one of them on VHS, but that was it. But I would see the other ones on TV and that sort of stuff. And we grew up with the toys, and we grew up knowing all about Star Wars, but thinking that it was over, right? The trilogy was it, that's all. Um, and then some point when I was in probably junior high, I guess it would have been, uh, there was light in the darkness. George Lucas announced that he was going to do the prequel trilogy. And oh man, the anticipation for these movies was huge. Toys were released early. Um, I ate a lot of Taco Bell as a kid, and Taco Bell... Uh, had all sorts of toys and they had Star Wars on top of every, you know on all the the packaging and everything and um, we had little Anakin even though we didn't know who he was really on everything uh, we had that one poster with the shadow that's probably the greatest movie poster of all time right the Vader shadow poster um, and then so there's all this buildup right and then the movie came out and oh boy what a letdown right Jar Jar Banks. Uh, nothing. I was in eighth grade, I think, when it came out. The summer after eighth grade. Boy, there's nothing better than long-winded political speeches about Senate procedure, right? What a drag this movie was. So much buildup, so much anticipation, all for what? At that point, the worst Star Wars movie. And so there are a lot of letdowns like this in life, aren't there? Uh, you know, I mean, I could think of a lot of them. There, you know, there's a lot of times where there's this buildup and this anticipation, and then when the thing actually comes, it's a huge letdown. But one time, there's one time where it really wasn't a letdown. One guy actually lived up to the hype, and that's Jesus Christ. So since Genesis three, the world has been waiting for the very public ministry for the public ministry of the promised Messiah. 
Today, that three-year ministry that we're going to read about for pretty much the rest of the book of Luke uh, begins. So we're going to start, and we're going to see as we read this that the ministry of Jesus— sorry, I'm going to turn this real fast— that the ministry of Jesus—there we go— Uh, was not a letdown. The ministry of Jesus is phenomenal, and that's why we're reading this book of Luke together. So we're going to start just by reading verse 21. So we left off last time with John. He was baptizing people, and then he was arrested. Uh, Luke jumps the story back a little bit to talk about during that time that John was baptizing people. Uh, It says in verse 21, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. So uh, Luke says that, All the people were baptized. He doesn't literally mean every single person in the Judean area was baptized. It's a way to just say a lot of people were baptized. He's showing us how successful the ministry of John the Baptist really was. And part of that crowd, so there's these huge crowds are making their way out from Jerusalem out to the Jordan. Part of that crowd was Jesus. John's distant relative. Now, there's a lot of conjecture and all sorts of stuff. They're cousins. How do they know each other? The odds are that John and Jesus didn't really know each other very well. Uh, We kind of get hints of that as we read some of the other Gospels give us a little more detail. So, um, John... So they're distant, they're distant relatives. They're part of what we would say the same clan, you know? Um, And so Jesus goes out there and is baptized by John. And there's this interesting detail that Luke puts in here that the rest of the gospel writers leave out, that while Jesus was praying, he was baptized. So Luke is the only one that gives us this detail. Remember, we talked about Jesus growing up. Part of that in his humanity was he grew up in his faith. And one of Luke's keys as we read the gospel of Luke is he's going to show us how much Jesus loved to pray and how much he depended on the Father. Remember the whole bit uh, from the sermon a few weeks ago, we talked about the humanity of Jesus and how Jesus lived his life as the Spirit-filled Messiah. And we talked about from Philippians how he, he put the privileges of his deity aside to live his life as a true human being, as the Spirit, like I said, the Spirit-filled Messiah. And part of that was him being baptized. So he was baptized just like everybody else who went out uh, and walked into the water, and he was dipped by John and brought back up. And um, But here's the thing. So ju- he was just like everybody else, except his baptism was a little bit bit different. Look at verse uh, 22. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. So here at the baptism of Jesus, we have this, this clear picture of the Trinity. Now, I could do a whole sermon just on this verse and talk about the Trinity. But basically, we know, oops, we know Theologically, the idea of the Trinity is that God is made up of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each of those three uh, uh, persons are seen here, right? So we have the Son, Jesus, being baptized by John. And then we have the Spirit. He descends like a dove. The Spirit is not usually visible, but here he is. We see this at Pentecost with the tongues of fire. And what it says is he descends like a dove. So not exactly like a dove, but like a dove in some way. Luke and the other gospel writers aren't specific, uh, but he, he, the Spirit shows up in some sort of a visible way, and then the heavens are opened up, and we hear the voice of the Father. So let me say a few things about this. First, notice uh, what the voice says. Notice it's you. This is directed at Jesus, even though everybody else heard it. So this was first and foremost uh, meant for him to encourage Jesus as he starts his public ministry. 
And then look at the message. He says, you are my son. So he's reinforcing Jesus's identity as the divine son of God. And then third, he says, with you, I am, you know, I'm well, you're my son. With you, I'm well pleased. So he's affirming Jesus's life, his human life. Up to this point, Jesus had lived into his 30s, as we'll see in the next verse. Um, And for the most part, his life was undramatic. Nobody up to this point was really thinking, boy, I bet this guy's the Messiah, right? He lived in Nazareth. We learned earlier that he was an exceptional student. Uh, He probably learned his father's trade. We're told that Joseph was a carpenter. Um, But when we say carpenter, um, some scholars think that the word means something more like a stone worker. Um, Some think it means more just like a builder. He was a contractor. But whatever it was, he learned his father's trade. He worked. Uh, But all the while, at the same time, he was growing in his faith. And he was learning to depend uh, more and more on the father, living his life, uh, following the law of God. And then um, he goes to meet John and is baptized. And at his baptism, the heavens open up, the spirit descends like a dove. And the father says with an audible voice, dude, you are my son and you're crushing it. It was encouraging to Jesus. This was part of how Jesus' faith continued to grow and his trust in God uh, continued uh, to grow. And we'll talk more about the baptism and the meaning of it in a little bit. But for now, uh, let's just uh, keep on, we'll keep on reading the rest of the story. So what we're going to read next is the genealogy of Jesus. Now, we always skip the genealogies, don't we? When you read through your Bible reading plan, Most of us skip over these genealogies. Let me read to you, though. Uh, I think they're important. Um, Let me, I'm not actually going to read, we'll talk about it. I'm not going to read the whole thing today. We had it in the scripture reading. Uh, But most of us don't think they're that important. I think they are. Let me read to you a a quote, this long quote from um, pastor, this pastor, uh, Philip Ryken, who I think is also a professor. Uh, He said this. He tells this story. I'm just going to read it verbatim because he he said it so well. He said, when a Bible translator in Papua New Guinea started to translate Matthew's gospel, he thought, the last thing I want to do is bog these people down with the genealogy. So he began with chapter 2. But the day came when all the other chapters were done, and he called together the men who were helping them, and they decided on the best way to say begat. You know, this guy begat that guy, whatever. Uh, then, then they proceeded with Matthew chapter 1. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, you know. By the time they completed about six of these begats, the translator could sense the men were becoming very excited. Do you mean that these were real men, they asked? Yes, he said they were real men. Uh, that's what we do, they added, referring to their custom of keeping track of genealogies. We had thought that these were just uh, white man's stories. Do you really mean that Abraham was a real man? Yeah, the translator said. That's what I've been telling you. We didn't know that, they said, but now, now we believe. And that night they gathered the village together and said, listen to this. And they read the first chapter of Matthew. And this chapter was the key to belief for the entire tribe. So we skip over a lot of this genealogy stuff, but Philip Reich in there tells us one of the reasons this is important is because it helps us reinforce that these were real people. This is real genealogy. So I'm going to read bits and pieces of this. Um, You know, we'd already read the names through the LUMO project, so I'm not going to read every name here, but let's just start and we'll read all of verse 23. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. 
So it says that Jesus, at first it tells us Jesus was about 30. So if he was born sometime before 4 BC when Herod the Great died, uh, and his ministry began in either 28 or 29, he's in his early to mid-30s when his public ministry started. So um, I'm 36, so I'm probably pretty close to about the age uh, where Jesus was in his ministry and when he died and rose again, Um, you know, mid-30s. And so Luke tells us, Jesus, when he began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. So as far as most people knew, Joseph was Jesus's real dad. Uh, That's what everybody thought. Joseph and Mary, they had other children. They had some brothers. We know about two of them, right? James, uh, who became a leader in the early church. Uh, who wrote the book of James, and Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, uh, were not believers during his ministry. Uh, We know he also had some sisters. Uh, And so they had other children, and Jesus was the oldest of these children. And everybody that knew them just assumed Mary got pregnant before the marriage was official, and uh, or before the marriage actually happened, and that Joseph was the father. Well, so this genealogy that we're going to read now, it traces Jesus's line through Joseph. And so there's a bunch of names here. Like I said, I'm not going to read all of them. I just want to mention, um, I'll mention a few things, a few things about some of these names. So first, let's talk about genealogies in the ancient world. Why were genealogies so important? They were critical to the people of Israel. They were um, all about tribes, right? What tribe you were in, uh, what land allotments were given to different tribes. Um, there's this idea of the kinsman redeemer. If you know the book of Ruth, where um, uh, if a husband died, the, the widow would marry somebody else in the family. They had this whole system. So the genealogies were important to decide who was the kinsman redeemer. Um, the genealogies uh, determined taxation. There were a lot of reasons that the people of Israel kept crazy records about their ancestry. Uh, If you don't believe me, go read the first part of the book of Chronicles. The first, I don't remember what it is, 12 or 15 chapters or something. The whole first part of that book is just genealogy after genealogy and lists of names and who was there and all this stuff. Um, So one thing we'll notice as we read this genealogy is that the genealogies also were not um, uh, complete. So the word son of, or, or begat, right? This guy begat that guy. In the ESV it says the son of this guy, the son of this guy. Um, the word son of can mean of the line of. So I'll give you an example. My granddad, uh, my father's dad, his name was John uh, with an H. Uh, I'm John without the H. Uh, my dad's name is David. If somebody was writing my genealogy the way the biblical writers did and the way that they did in the first, you know, in the ancient world, they could write my line by saying that John was the son of John with an H and they could just totally skip my dad and it would be okay because I'm still a descendant of John. So just if you look at these names, uh, it goes from Jesus to Adam. That's definitely happening here. There are uh, some names probably a lot of names that are left out of Jesus's genealogy. And that's okay, because in the time, the Bible was written in the language and style of the time. And in that time, they, they kept very meticulous genealogy, but it wasn't as scientific as what we do. And this genealogy would have been perfectly acceptable to anybody in this day. So let's talk about then some of the names that we see here. So uh, there's some of the notable names, right? 
the the most notable and most important name here is David, because this genealogy is about the kingly succession. We read about Boaz, if you know from the book of Ruth. So uh, what is that, David's, that'd be his, I think, great-grandfather. We read about Judah. So Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. We read about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of Israel. Uh, We read about Noah, the world's most famous sailor. Uh, And then it goes back. This genealogy goes all the way back in verse 38 to Adam. And uh, look what it says about Adam. It says, uh, I'll read 38. It says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So do you see that? Adam was the first son of God. And we just read, though, in verse 22 about Jesus is also called the son of God. And so you are my beloved son. That's what the father says at the baptism. And that's very intentional. And so I want to just leave that here. We're going to come back to that in just a second. Now, If you are a careful student of scripture and you read this genealogy and then you go over to the book of Matthew and you read that genealogy, what you're going to notice is that they're totally different. So there's, I'll give you some of the differences. Matthew goes back to Abraham. Luke goes to Adam. Matthew starts backwards and works his way forward to Jesus. Luke starts the other way around. Uh, Luke goes the other way around. Um, In uh, starts with Jesus and goes back to Adam. In Matthew, uh, Joseph's father, was uh, his name was Jacob, and it worked back with one set of names. In Luke's genealogy, Joseph's father is Heli, and, or really probably Eli, and worked back with a different set of names. Uh, Matthew places his genealogy at the very beginning of the book. Uh, Luke places his after the beginning of the birth narrative and at the beginning of Jesus' public difference. So why are there different genealogies? I only have one genealogy. Uh, my dad is actually, if I don't know if you're watching this dad, so I'll talk about this. I, sometimes he watches our sermons. Uh, but my dad is uh, crazy about genealogy. And my whole childhood and adolescence growing up, he was working on our family genealogy. And he was going online and he put together a book. I have it in a PDF. It's like this fat book that's our history. And really, I only have one genealogy. There's not two different versions. So why does Jesus have two? What are the, why the differences? Well, basically, there's three options here. The old school uh, option is this, that uh, Luke traces Mary's line, uh, but uh, Matthew traces Joseph's line. Now, this isn't the most popular uh, theory because anymore because both of them mention Luke. So uh, that's one option. You might read that in your Bible, uh, study Bible or in commentaries or that sort of thing. The second option is that Matthew traces the royal line of succession, but that Luke traces physical descent. And so there's a lot of different versions of this one, but um, in most solutions, there was some kind of a kinsman redeemer stuff that happened with Joseph's dad. And that would have meant that Joseph was the physical son of one guy, but he was the legal heir of another guy. And in um, uh, uh Uh, Jewish genealogies, both of those would have counted. So either one of those lines would have counted. And the interesting part is if that's the option, both of those lines uh, go back through David. So that means in one sense, Jesus is the legal, you know, heir of the throne of David, uh, but he's also the physical descendant of David. Um, The third option is um, some people say that uh, Heli in Luke was Mary's dad, but um, he later adopted Joseph as his son uh, because Joseph's father died, and then uh, Joseph would have married Mary. Now, uh, that sounds really weird to us, marrying your stepsister or whatever, but that would not have been unheard of in this time. So those are basically the three options. Um, I'm not going to tell you which one I think because I have no idea. Uh, 
and it it's not super crucial to pick one side of this debate. Uh, the academics, you know, they write whole books on this sort of stuff. But the two main takeaways, right? Don't be tripped up with the differences in the genealogy. Both genealogies make the same point. Jesus is the son of David, right? He is the promised king. And whichever genealogy you use, they both go back there. The second thing is that's important to notice is that Luke goes out of his way to make this very important point. His genealogy goes all the way back in verse 38 to Adam. Jesus goes back to Adam, a real flesh and blood human being, just like the rest of us. Um, I want to get a little bit theological here, and I want to talk about what's going on. So to do that, um, if, you have a, if you're following along in your Bible, flip over to Romans chapter 5. We're going to read uh, 12 through 21. Now, I cannot wait someday to teach the book of Romans. Um, when I do, this section that we're about to read is going to be like five or ten sermons. Uh, today, you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones did a really great preaching series a bunch of years ago through Romans. I didn't look, but I bet this is ten sermons in his thing. Um, this is one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. Um, today we're going to do just kind of a, a flyover of this passage. And because this is going to help shed some light on what we just read with the baptism in the genealogy. So we'll start here um, in uh, verse 12. We'll read 12 through 14 first. Uh, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. For indeed... Uh, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no, no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who is to come. All right. So like I said, there was a lot in just even those couple of verses to unpack. There's several sermons in there, but again, we're just going to do a flyover. So um, let me say this. I talk about this a lot because I think it's very important. We live in the Western world, right? The, the modern Western world. And one of our our two, I guess I could say, primary um, values in the West are freedom and individualism. And in Western individualism, what I mean by that is um, the most important thing in our lives is ourselves. Uh, am I happy? How does this affect me? I'm responsible for myself. We create these, like we're an island. You know what I mean by that? And so that's our primary value. Well, the Bible takes a very different view from Western individualism. People in other cultures seem to really understand this better and get this more correct, I think, than we do. That we are very connected as humanity. That we are uh, connected as people made in God's image. And there's this theological idea that we call federal headship or covenant headship. And what this is, is where somebody represents other people so that their actions are intertwined. Um, so I'll give you some examples, right? Uh, we, we even do this even in the Western individualistic kind of world. Uh, we have union reps. Now, a union rep will negotiate with management in a sort of a trade negotiation. And whatever that union rep negotiates applies to everybody that he represents. Um, or we have elected leaders. And so uh, London Breed is our mayor. Um, who, you know, in the middle of this COVID crisis that we should all be praying for um, and trying to support. Um, With London Breed, um, you know, people voted for her and she makes decisions that affect everybody. And her decisions, she's our elected leader. So she's one person, but she represents a lot of people. Or Nancy Pelosi is our congresswoman. Or, you know, we have senators, we have a president, 
Uh, all these people, right? They they make decisions on behalf of. That's our. You know, we live in a republic. They make decisions on behalf of everybody. Um, another example is when you get married and you join your finances together. Um, you get joint accounts and all that sort of stuff. And uh, your financial decisions will affect your spouse, will affect the person that you are married to. Um, maybe the most obvious example of this, this idea of federal headship is with a lawyer. So um, you, I watch, I t- you know, I talk about law and order all the time because I watch a ton of law and order. And on law and order, you know, they always catch the bad guy and the bad guy has a, a, a criminal defense lawyer. Another one of my favorite shows is called The Practice from back in the 90s. Anyway, so there's this criminal defense lawyer and that person represents the person um, that they are defending. And so when you have a lawyer, that person can stand up in court and speak on your behalf. And we hire these lawyers because they know the law better than we do. And they're going to be better at representing us than we will be at ourselves, representing ourselves. So what does all this mean? Well, in the Bible, the idea of federal headship comes in like this. Adam, right, the first created human being, he is the federal head of humanity. He represented humanity. Now, so that when he fell, we all fell. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's not fair, right? Like Monty Python, right? I didn't vote for him. But if God is perfect, here's the thing. If God is perfect, that we know, and Scripture tells us that he is, then he picked a perfect federal head. So out of everybody in all of humanity who's ever lived, nobody better represented humanity uh, than Adam. And so when he fell... Uh, we fell with him. So, but isn't this idea of federal headship or Adam representing all of humanity, isn't that really bad for us? Well, here's the thing. Imagine what it would be like if you had to deal with God on your own, no representative. You would be left alone to be judged in your sin. But here's the good news, right? The biblical good news, the gospel good news is that Adam isn't the only federal head. He isn't the only representative of humanity. And that's what we mean when we call Jesus the second Adam, Right? Adam is not the only representative. Jesus is the second one who gets to do this, to represent humanity. And that's what Paul talks about next. So he says, look, in Adam, in these first verses we read, he said, look, in Adam, all of us fell and sin came into the world. And so uh, now we have the option, though, of having this second federal head. So uh, in verse 14, uh, we'll read... Uh, yeah, uh, sorry, we'll start in verse 15. We'll read about Adam who, um, who is, uh, sorry, we'll read about Jesus who is the second Adam. So we'll read uh, 15 through 17. Um, he says this, But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more uh, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign uh, in life through the one man, Jesus Christ." So what what Paul does here is he's comparing now uh, Jesus and Adam, the first Adam and the second Adam. And he tells us about some of the differences in the way that they represent humanity. So the first difference is that their motivations are different. So Adam's sin was selfish. He wanted to be like God. Jesus's salvation 
and representing us, his salvation was selfless. He, um, he set his divine rights aside so that he could represent us and die on the cross. So do you see that? Jesus had what Adam was wanting. He had it in his grasp, and he put it over here, and he set aside the benefits of being perfectly divine so that he could perfectly represent us to succeed where Adam failed. I love that. Now, I'll give you an illustration. We all know um, Senator John McCain ran for president in 2008. Um, you know, the maverick, right? That's what we all call him. Uh, so I, I've heard a lot about his story. I read more about it this week as I was looking up this illustration here. Um, and uh, more about his time as a prisoner of war. Now, he was shot down during the Vietnam War. And uh, ejecting from the plane, he broke a bunch of bones. And then he was picked up by some North Vietnamese soldier uh, soldiers. And one of them, I think, hit him with the butt of a rifle and broke a bunch of more bones, I think, in his shoulder. Uh, he was taken to a prison. The I think they called it the Hanoi Hilton. And he was tortured by the North... Did I say North Koreans earlier? I meant North Vietnamese. Um, anyway, uh, but then they found out that John McCain's dad was a Navy admiral. And so the North Vietnamese, they agreed to release him um, for propaganda purposes. But McCain, John McCain, he refused to be released unless all the prisoners that were brought in before him were released as well. And then after he refused release, uh, he was tortured even worse. He ended up being a POW in that in a few different prisons. He was moved around for more than five years. And his injuries left him uh, unable to lift his arms over his head. So if you remember from the 2008 campaign, he was always doing this kind of like, you know, putting his arms up here. That was sort of the John McCain salute. The reason was because he couldn't do this. He couldn't lift his arms over his head. Now, John McCain had the ability to be freed, but in an act of selfless solidarity with his men and his soldiers, the other American POWs, he stayed with his men. There were other officers given the same uh, choice that were released, that chose to be released, where John McCain stayed put. They saved their own necks. It's the same with Adam and Jesus. Adam was looking out for himself in an act of uh, selfishness uh, as a representative of all the people. But Jesus, in an act of selfless solidarity, he set his privileges aside to be a better federal head. So that's the first difference. The second difference between Jesus and Adam is that Adam's actions brought death. Jesus's actions bring life. Look at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through Adam, that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, this is important, they will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So in Adam's in Adam's sin, what happened to all of humanity is that death had a hold on us. It has this power over us. We are slaves to sin. That's what the Bible says. But in Jesus, we are freed from that bondage. But it's, not, it's more than that. Not only are we free from the reign of sin, now we become rulers in the kingdom of God. Meaning, we have moved from the bottom, right, from death to the very top, those who reign with Jesus in the kingdom of God. So that's the, next, that's the second difference. The third difference is that Jesus' work is greater than the work of Adam. So in verse 15 and 17, uh, we see this. Jesus's work is greater in the sense that it can undo everything that Adam's work did. Jesus's work is stronger. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says that the contrast is between sin and grace or the gift. 
The condemnation is an act of justice, and justice uh, meets our equivalents, exactly what we deserve. But our justification is an act of grace, and grace overflows and abounds, giving us 10, 100, 1,000, and an infinity times more than we deserve. So do you see that? Adam's sin was enough to, 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 to sink all of humanity, and it had a certain amount of power, but the grace of God is limitless. It's, it's uh, unlimited amounts of power. So there's no contest when it comes to being able to undo um, the sin of Adam. All right, and then we're going to read these last three verses here, verse 18, or four verses, 18. Uh, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience uh, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came uh, came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, um, in verse 18 through 19, what we see there is one act is all it took. They both did one act. Uh, Adam for Adam, on Adam and Jesus, both representing all of humanity, had this one action. For Adam, it was sin. He chose to sin and to plunge us all into ruin and rebellion against the God who created us. But then Jesus comes along. The second Adam comes along. And his action was obedience to the point of death. That's what Philippians says. Even death on the cross. So now let's tie this back to our passage. Why do we read all this stuff? Jesus is the second Adam who succeeded where the first Adam failed. Right. Well, there's two parts to our passage. And in both sections, uh, Luke gives us a picture of Jesus as the perfect second Adam, the true representative of humanity, right? So let's talk about that second part first, the genealogy. Luke specifically traces his genealogy all the way back to Adam. The point of that is um, to show that Jesus was a real human being, to show how he set aside the privileges of his uh, his divinity. He had a real human body. He had real human DNA, a human mind, a human soul. He had grandparents. He had family. He walked around. He ate food. He got sick. He had emotions. Uh, he was sad sometimes. He was happy sometimes. We'll read that sometimes he was angry. He was just like us, except in one very crucial way. Because of the virgin birth, what that means is that he wasn't born with the stain of sin. He wasn't born uh, with the sin nature that we are all uh, all born with and burdened with. He wasn't born a slave to sin the way that we are. So then why the baptism? If Jesus was sinless, if he didn't have that stain of sin, why the baptism of repentance? We just read in uh, chapter 3, John was calling everybody to repent and to be baptized to prove their repentance. You know, And um, so why did Jesus have to be baptized if he was sinless? Well, let's take a look at the baptism more closely by looking at it uh, from two of the other Gospels. So I'll flip over. I want to read to you the baptism account in the book of John. So it's in John chapter 1. Let me find it real fast. End of Luke. We're getting close. Uh, Okay, John chapter 1, starting in verse 29. Uh, Let me read this to you. It says, The next day, he, that's John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away uh, the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, 
But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. So one of the most important parts of this is that John specifically is calling himself a witness to the deity of Jesus. This regular human guy who walked around for 30 years that nobody knew was God. John said earlier, uh, the, the Holy Spirit told me that the, 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 the Spirit will descend and, and remain on somebody who comes to be baptized. This is how we think John and Jesus probably didn't know each other that well, if they knew each other at all. And uh, that's the guy. That's the guy that you're getting everybody ready for. And then also, I love this, right? In verse 29, uh, when he saw Jesus coming towards him, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everybody knew what that meant. The Lamb was part of the sacrifice, uh, sacrificial system of the Old Testament, right? So the Lamb of God means that Jesus is the sacrifice. And what that meant was your sin is poured out on this animal who now represents you. And this animal will give its life and spill its blood and take the wrath of God so that you don't have to. It's a perfect, uh, you know, it's supposed to be a perfect spotless lamb. It was a representative of the people uh, who were uh, sinful. And so that imagery to anybody back then was super clear, right? That when he says to the crowd, this is the Lamb of God who comes away, comes to take away the sin of the world, they knew exactly what he was talking about. So Jesus, as our representative, fulfills the Old Testament law in that he is the perfect sacrifice. Now let's read the same story, but from Matthew 3. So this is 3, 13 uh, through 17. It says this, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him by saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so uh, now for this is, this is crucial for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus, there's more details in Matthew's telling. And in this telling, Jesus comes to John and John says, you're going to, I'm going to baptize you. You should baptize me, right? You're the Messiah. You're the King that we have all been waiting for. John tries to prevent him. But then in verse 15, Jesus says, no, I have to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And that's the key to the baptism of Jesus. Why did the perfect human, the sinless human need to be baptized? It wasn't for repentance. It wasn't because of sin. It was because he is, as Paul put it, right? He is the, the second Adam. He is our federal head. He needs to perfectly represent us. And so to completely fulfill the law, uh, he needs to completely fulfill the law so that when he switches places with us, right? We call that the great exchange. When he switches places with us, we get credit for his perfect righteousness. So as our federal head, our covenant head, as our representative, Jesus was perfect. He perfectly fulfilled the law. And so what does this all mean, right? There's a lot of big words in Romans and theology here. All of this theology, like I always say, is completely useless if it just stays in your head. So what does this all mean for us? Oops. Well, let's talk about your life. 
You are a sinner who has rebelled against God Almighty. You are self-centered. You're proud. You struggle with all different kinds of sin, whatever they may be, anger, lust. You know, there's a lot of them, right? Um, idolatry, addictions, that's everyone. We all have this inherited sin that we have received by being born as sons and daughters of Adam, our first representative, our federal head. And so for those with Adam as their federal head, as their representative, when God sees them, he sees their sin and he will pour out his wrath. They will receive justice at the judgment seat of God in the end. But for those who trust in Jesus, we have a new federal head. We have a better representative, one who perfectly fulfilled uh, the law of God. And so trusting in Jesus, you won't face that judgment. When God looks at your life, he doesn't see your life. He doesn't see your sin. He sees Jesus's perfect obedience. You really need to understand that. I'll say that again. When God looks at you and when he looks at your life, He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your mistakes. He doesn't see your sin nature. He sees Jesus's perfect obedience, the one who perfectly fulfilled the law. All the guilt, gone. The judgment, gone. The hold that sin has on you, gone. Your sin has been replaced with Jesus's perfect life. He perfectly fulfilled the law. He lived a life of sinless perfection as our representative so that at the end of the book of Luke he could obey the Lord the father head to the cross and die the death that we should have died so that we get credit for his life it's the, that's the wonderful gospel story and so when we see Jesus his humanity as we read about that here in the book of Luke Uh, goes back to Adam. He did that so that he could be our representative. When we read about his baptism, even though he wasn't a sinner, he did that so that he could be our representative. And the application for us is to really understand what that means for our lives. That when God, think about how wonderful this truth actually is. When God, when he looks at you, a wretched, disgusting sinner, a fallen and broken human being, he doesn't see all those things. He sees the perfect wonderful, righteous life that Jesus lived in your place. Amen. Let's pray.